Plutarch relates a story about Pyrrhus. It happened as he was making his preparations to invade Italy. Pyrrhus had a good friend and a trusted advisor named Cineus. Cineus had a reputation for wisdom. When he was a young man, he studied oratory with a famous orator in Athens, Demosthenes. Cineus was a follower of a famous Athenian philosopher named Epicurus, the famous one. And the story is that Pyrrhus was busy doing this and that, getting his expedition ready, gathering his supplies, mustering troops, making arrangements for what was to be done in Epirus in his absence. And Cineus waited for the right time, perhaps toward the end of a busy day of administration, and he approached the king. And Plutarch says, Finding Pyrrhus at leisure for a moment, Cineus drew him into the following conversation. The Romans, O Pyrrhus, are said to be good fighters and to be rulers of many warlike nations. If then heaven should permit us to conquer these men, how shall we use our victory? And Pyrrhus said, Thy question, O Cineus, really needs no answer. The Romans once conquered, there is neither barbarian nor Greek city there, which is a match for us. But we shall at once possess all Italy, the great size and richness and importance of which no man should know better than thyself. After a little pause, then, Cineus said, And after taking Italy, O king, what are we to do? And Pyrrhus, not yet perceiving his intention, replied, Sicily is near and holds out her hands to us, an island abounding in wealth and men, and very easy to capture, for all is faction there. Her cities have no government, and demagogues are rampant now that Agathocles is gone. What thou sayest, replied Cineus, is probably true, but will our expedition stop with the taking of Sicily? Heaven grant us, said Pyrrhus, victory and success so far, and we will make these contests but the preliminaries of great enterprises, for who could keep his hands off Libya or Carthage if that city got within his reach, a city which Agathocles, slipping stealthily out of Syracuse and crossing the sea with a few ships, narrowly missed taking. And when we have become masters there, no one of our enemies who now treat us with scorn will offer further resistance. There is no need of saying that. None whatever, said Cineus, for it is plain that with so great a power we shall be able to recover Macedonia and rule Greece securely. But when we have got everything subject to us, what are we going to do? Then Pyrrhus smiled upon him and said, We shall be much at ease, and will drink great bowls of wine, my good man, every day, and will gladden one another's hearts with confidential talks. And now that Cineus had brought Pyrrhus to this point in the argument, he said, Then what stands in our way now if we want to drink bowls of wine and while away the time with one another? Surely this privilege is ours already, and we have at hand, without taking any trouble, those things which we hope to attain by bloodshed and great toils and perils, after doing much harm to others and suffering much ourselves. End quote. And Plutarch adds that when he heard this, Pyrrhus was more disturbed than he was convinced because he saw clearly what great happiness he was leaving behind him. But he just couldn't renounce his hopes of obtaining what he eagerly desired.
I'm Alex Petkus, and you are listening to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman heroes in order to sharpen ourselves for the present. We take the ancient philosopher Plutarch as our guide. This is part two of three of the life of Pyrrhus, king of Epirus. When we last left Pyrrhus, he had been approached by emissaries from the city of Tarentum in Italy, bearing gifts. The Tarentines were offering him big rewards. They were promising glory if he would help them win their war. And their opponent was that little-known barbarian city in central Italy called Rome. Now, history is filled with examples of leaders dreaming big, smashing boundaries. And they often fail spectacularly, don't they? Napoleon tried to invade Russia. Xerxes tried to invade Greece. In retrospect, sometimes they seem like they were destined to become cautionary tales. But it's just as easy for us to think of examples when it worked, isn't it? Especially if we're ambitious and motivated and we're dreaming of a grand expansion or expedition or intrusion. The Mongols, the British East India Company, Moses and Joshua taking the promised land. And of course, Pyrrhus thought of his cousin, Alexander the Great. So which kind of expedition was Pyrrhus's going to become? An Alexander expedition or a Xerxes expedition? The only way to find out was to try. Pyrrhus accepted the invitation of the Tarentines. The very fact of its being massive, dangerous, almost preposterous, some might say megalomaniacal, was part of the appeal now, Pyrrhus was at least passingly familiar with the Tarentines and the Romans already. He knew the story of his uncle, Alexander, not the famous conqueror, but King Alexander the Molossian, who was the brother of Aunt Olympias. Olympias, again, Alexander's mother, Pyrrhus's second cousin. Now, this Alexander the Molossian, this Alexander of Epirus, had been invited by those Tarentines to help them in some other war with the local Italian tribes. And that Alexander had been killed in battle in Italy long before Pyrrhus was born. Not long before that, the Tarentines had invited a Spartan king to help them with another war. Tarentum was actually a colony of Sparta long ago. And the Spartan king came and he got killed in battle too. Italy was a rough place. And Pyrrhus was, of course, acquainted with Western affairs from his short-lived marriage to a Sicilian woman, Lanassa, the daughter of Agathocles, tyrant of Syracuse. By this point, Agathocles had already passed away. But Pyrrhus knew how Agathocles had campaigned in Italy, in Sicily, and how he had even taken war to the Carthaginians in Africa, across the Straits, in modern Tunisia. So Pyrrhus sends Cineus ahead to Tarentum with a small detachment of soldiers. He's supposed to prepare the way for Pyrrhus and the main expeditionary force. Now the Tarentines had promised that once Pyrrhus arrived, he was going to have a massive army at his disposal. 350,000 foot soldiers and 20,000 horsemen. That's big talk. That's more than the strength of both armies put together from the Battle of Ipsus. That was the big one that Pyrrhus fought in as a young man. But then again, Tarentum was a very rich and very large city. It had many allies, so a big army. And Pyrrhus, in his eyes, was not coming to fight the war for them, 
but to provide leadership and experience for an existing coalition. That was the impression the Tarantine ambassadors had given him. But for good measure, he brought his own army as well, a sizable one. His force was actually larger than any force any Greek had ever brought across the Adriatic Sea. 20,000 soldiers, 3,000 horsemen, 2,500 bowmen and slingers, and 30 war elephants. Three of the Macedonian kings had also sent money along and troops to help him on his way. These guys were quite happy to see Pyrrhus out of the way for a while. And so Pyrrhus crossed the sea, and he did this at the Strait of Otranto. That's the narrowest passage between Greece and Italy. It was a relatively short journey, but it was known to be a dangerous journey, and they were crossing a little early in the sailing season. And so when they were midway across, a huge storm sprang up out of nowhere, as they can in the spring, and the storm scattered the fleet. In the dark hours of the morning, with the storm still in full force, the Italian shore came in sight, and Pyrrhus decided to jump ship and swim the remaining distance, and his shipmates followed behind. But the ship sank. So Pyrrhus reached Italy really as a castaway. Only a tenth of his expeditionary force made it to shore with him. But he was undaunted. He took the men that he had and set out for Tarentum. It was a few days' journey away. Meanwhile, his ambassador Cineas had gotten word of the disaster and rode from Tarentum to meet him. And he came with more bad news about affairs in Tarentum. To begin with, there was no trace of this army of 350,000 men that the Tarentines had boasted about. The Romans were certainly readying their armies for a strike on Tarentum. They were putting garrisons in towns along the route to secure their supply lines. The Romans were taking initiative like professionals. The Tarentines, however, hadn't even summoned their allies yet. They seemed to think that that was Pyrrhus's job. He was a leader of men and all that, right? But it seemed like the city wasn't even totally settled on whether it wanted Pyrrhus there. And Pyrrhus is starting to learn the backstory as he's riding to Tarentum with Cineus. To begin with, Tarentum was a democracy dominated by wealthy seafaring merchants. Most of their military work, they liked to contract out to mercenaries. And the Tarentines were famous for the great wealth and splendor that they poured into their celebrations of the festivals of the gods. As a matter of fact, it was in the middle of a multi-day festival that the whole recent trouble with the Romans had broken out. It happened at the annual festival of Dionysus. Kind of like New Orleans at Mardi Gras, everyone wanted to be in Tarentum for this party. But in the middle of these drunken revelries, the festival of Dionysus, the townsfolk spotted out at sea a small fleet of Roman vessels entering their waters. But these were waters that the Romans were forbidden from entering. They had signed a treaty. Cries of rage erupt in the city. The people are still quite drunk, and the hotheads see this as a provocation. There's no hesitation or deliberation. The sailors pour into the harbor, cram into their war galleys. Meanwhile, the Roman ships cross the Tarentine waters, and they were just innocently bringing supplies to a nearby port city down the coast, so they later said. It was called Thurii, it's to the west. This was an ally of the Romans and a rival of the Tarentines. And the Tarentine fleet swoops in without warning 
and burns and sinks the ships of the Romans in the harbor of Thurii in broad daylight, and they kill many of the Romans on board the ships. The Roman admiral in command of the fleet drowns with his ship. Then the Tarentines charge in, and they loot the city of Thurii. The Roman populace is enraged when they hear the news. Good men were killed. The Tarentines didn't even bother sending heralds to complain or announce war. They just charged in and sunk Roman ships, men and all. They had viciously abused a city allied to the Romans, too. But the Senate at Rome had responded with restraint. They sent an embassy to Tarentum to try to negotiate a peace settlement. They were already fighting a war on their northern front with their bitter enemies, the Etruscans. Maybe they could avoid starting up another new costly war. The Roman ambassador arrived and he entered the theater. He politely addressed the Tarentine assembly in his best attempt at Greek. And he expressed offense at the hasty attack, of course. But then he offered what he called generous terms. If the Tarentines would simply hand over the instigators of the attack, the Romans would ignore this grievous injury and henceforth not bother them or enter their waters again. It was difficult, though, for the ambassador to get through his speech. At every Greek mistake he made, the assembly broke out in snickers and mockery. When he finished, the assembly quickly voted to reject the terms. They thought accepting this offer was tantamount to subjection to the Romans. And as the ambassador was making his way out of the theater, a drunkard tottered into his way, pulled aside his robe, squatted down, and bespattered the man with excrement. The crowd erupted with laughter and cheered. But then the Romans sent a legion into the area, and they repeated their same demands. The Tarentines sobered up a little at this point, and they called another assembly. And we're still in the, in the backstory here, by the way. So at this assembly, Pyrrhus's name came up, and they're debating whether to send an embassy to Pyrrhus to call for an alliance, or whether they should make peace with the Romans. And serious speeches are being spoken. The citizenry is leaning towards the Pyrrhus option. But suddenly, the sound of festival instruments was heard at the entrance of the theater where they were assembling. A well-respected citizen named Meton entered. He was wearing flower garlands and party attire. He was accompanied by flute curls. Some people were annoyed, but many in the crowd started clapping along with the music and cheering for Meton in the manner of free men who have no fear of their rulers, according to Plutarch. And Meton stops in the center of the stage. That's where the speakers stood. And he asks for silence. And he waits for the laughter and the cheering to die down. And he says, Citizens, enjoy this freedom of ours while you have it. For if Pyrrhus comes, you will have to adopt a very different set of occupations and diet and way of life. And there's a stunned silence. Murmurs spread through the crowd. And the pro-Roman voices, the peace party, are starting to get encouraged. But then the hawks, the pro-war party, they push their way to the front and they grab Meton and throw him out of the theater, garlands and flute girls and all. And the motion to call Pyrrhus in passes. And so, now, here they were. On their ride to Tarentum, Canaeus explained to Pyrrhus that... 
The promises of the ambassadors had, well, misrepresented the situation. Despite any good intention, or maybe delusional optimism, of the small pro-Pyrrhist party in the city, the citizenry as a whole had no desire to follow Pyrrhus as a leader. They didn't want to fight in his armies themselves. They wanted him to be a good mercenary, take his pay, fight their fight for them, and be on his way. Pyrrhus arrived at the city in this weak and uncertain position. He lodged his troops in the Tarantines' houses. He endured hearing the citizenry's complaints about the great inconvenience and disturbance to their normal routines that they were now having to put up with. He kept quiet. And then the rest of Pyrrhus's army arrived. Turns out they hadn't been lost at sea. They had just been blown south by the storm all the way around the heel of Italy. Ah, now it was time to get to business. That party boy, Miton, was right. The fun was over. If Pyrrhus was going to fight a war on behalf of the Tarantines, risk his life and his men, they were going to fight it with him, whether they wanted to or not. Pyrrhus closes up the public squares in the gymnasia, where they used to stroll around and fight out their country's battles in talk, as Plutarch says. He puts a stop to their festivals and their dinner parties and drinking contests. Curfew. Puke runs at dawn. He was going to whip these men into soldiers. They were going to have to learn to treat him not like a guest, but like a general. It wasn't going to be easy or pleasant. They complained in the assembly. Pyrrhus dissolved the assembly. He shut down the theater, too. He instituted a draft. People started leaving the city. Pyrrhus shut the gates and put 24-hour sentries on duty, death penalty for any draft dodgers. He drilled his conscripts throughout the day. Slowly, his Tarantine brigade started to look like it could be respectable one day. But then he got word that the Romans were satisfied with their war preparations. They had shored up their supply lines and installed their garrisons among their allies. And now a large Roman army was headed straight for Tarentum, numbering in the 20,000s. Well, Pyrrhus had by this point sent out to summon the allies of the Tarentines. The Lucanians were coming. They were a native South Italian tribe. They spoke Oscan, which is a language related to Latin. The Samnites were coming, sort of related to the Lucanians, also Oscan speaking. And these guys lived in the south-central Italian highlands, further away from Tarentum, closer to Rome. The Samnites were a much more formidable coalition of peoples. They were age-old foes of the Romans. But the Roman commander in charge of this army was doing everything he could to engage Pyrrhus before the allies got in range. He was at the doorstep of Tarentum before any of Pyrrhus's allies were in range. Pyrrhus was going to have to face the Romans on his own. All he had was his own army and his fresh new Tarentine recruits. But before engaging in battle, Pyrrhus sent an embassy to the Roman commander. His name was Livinus. Who knows, maybe these barbarians were gentlemen. It might be possible to discharge his duties to the Tarentines while avoiding all bloodshed. They were now in a much stronger negotiating position. The Tarentines now had a famous Greek king and his army on their porch. Wouldn't a bargain be better? Pyrrhus offered that the Tarentines could make some other kind of reparations to the Romans instead of handing over for execution those civic leaders who had led the assault on the Roman ships. 
And Pyrrhus offered himself as an arbiter between the disputing parties and an enforcer of whatever was agreed upon. Livinus's reply was admirably concise. The Romans, he said, neither chose Pyrrhus as a mediator nor feared him as a foe. Very well, then. And so the armies met. They came to face each other on opposite sides of a small river. This was in the region near the town of Heraclea, which was west of Tarentum along the coast. They named the battle after that city, eventually the Battle of Heraclea. And at the start, Pyrrhus's army was based on a small hill. The forces on either side were about equal in number. Pyrrhus rode down closer to the river with his officer, Megacles, out of missile range, so he could get a better look at the disposition of the Roman troops and the Romans' own Italian allies. And he was astonished by what he saw. As he rode back to his army, he turned to his companion and said, Megacles, I see nothing barbaric about the discipline of these barbarians. And he sent down some troops to guard the river crossing. Now the Romans are in hostile territory here, again. Their supply lines are exposed. And the longer they wait, the more likely it is that Pyrrhus's allies are going to arrive on the scene. So Livinus decides to force a very daring river crossing and engage the enemy immediately. He sends his cavalry across the ford. They fight back Pyrrhus's guards. The Roman infantry advances across the river. Well, that was troubling, losing one of his greatest advantages so quickly. But Pyrrhus keeps his cool. He forms up his heavy infantry lines and they advance down the hill to engage the Romans. He himself leads his elite cavalry in a flanking motion around the right side. Once the cavalry is engaged, he himself withdraws and he goes to give support to other parts of the field. And Pyrrhus was now in his element. His personal style of doing battle was to go and energize specific actions of his army by his personal presence on or near the front lines. Of course, he loved the thrill of combat, but he had developed the emotional discipline that let him sink mentally into the battle fury state to rally his troops and then re-emerge to keep track of the big picture to direct the whole orchestra. But fighting close to the front was always risky. You could recognize his armor and his regalia from a mile away. His troops always knew where he was, but so did the enemy. In the middle of the battle, one of his officers got his attention. Pyrrhus, there is a man on the Roman side who never takes his eyes off you. He roves about on his side, tracking your every move. He's the one riding the black horse with the white feet. He's going to try to take you down. Watch for him. They had barely finished their conversation when the man on the black horse saw a gap in the lines. He prods his horse, levels his spear gallops straight for Pyrrhus. He crashes into Pyrrhus. His spear misses the king, but strikes the horse. A fatal blow. But an officer next to Pyrrhus strikes the man's horse. At the same time, both men fall to the ground, and Pyrrhus's friends drag him away, but the Italian fights on madly to his own death. Being so conspicuous was maybe too great a risk. So Pyrrhus fades behind the lines with his officer Megacles, and they exchange armor and regalia. Then he goes back in and he rallies his cavalry. Doing this ended up saving his life, but it almost cost him the battle. Megacles became the number one target on the battlefield. Several daring Romans break through and they make straight for him. And they think, of course, that he's the king. One man finally kills Megacles. 
And then he brings the royal helmet and the king's purple cloak to Livinus, the Roman commander. And suddenly there are cries of joy and triumph on the Roman side. Livinus and his troops are starting to shout, Pyrrhus is dead! Pyrrhus is dead! And the Epirots and the Tarentines start to panic. Their lines start to falter. Pyrrhus realizes what's happened. He immediately takes Megacles' helmet off his head, and he rides back and forth along the lines and shows his troops his face, and he shouts to encourage them. After this, Pyrrhus musters a final infantry charge. He targets a spot in the battle where the Roman infantry are getting squeezed hard. It was the spot where Pyrrhus brought in his battle elephants, and he used them to hem in the Roman cavalry. Because when the elephants got close, the Roman horses were panicked into a stupor, and the cavalry got driven back onto the infantry. So Pyrrhus shoved his phalanx right into this dense knot of terror and confusion, and the Greeks finally break the Romans' will. And the Roman lines turn and flee after a bitter struggle. And this was the part of battle that usually claimed the most lives. The victors would chase down the vanquished as they ran in disarray. They would slaughter them at will. But Pyrrhus orders his troops to hold off. He maintains order and discipline. And so they won the battle, but it came at a much higher cost than Pyrrhus was expecting. The Romans had lost maybe 7,000, Pyrrhus a little less than 4,000, but they were some of his best men, some of his most trusted companions, like Megacles. But Pyrrhus had taken an important game piece. They cornered and captured over 1,500 Romans, and a lot of them were horsemen, that is, youths of high status with rich families. After the battle, Pyrrhus sent an impressive thanksgiving dedication to Zeus in his temple at Tarentum, captured enemy arms. And he also sent a bronze shield he took from the enemy back to Epirus, to the sacred oracle of Zeus at Dodona. And he had it inscribed with the words, King Pyrrhus and the Epirots and the Tarentines, taken from the Romans and their allies to Zeus. And the shield actually survives today. It's in Athens. Meanwhile, Pyrrhus's allies arrived, the Lucanians and the Samnites. The Samnites, in particular, were urging him to march on Rome while the path was clear and the Romans were in disarray. They would be more than happy to guide him down the best paths, show him where the geographical traps were. This was their turf. They and the Tarentines were promising that other cities and peoples would rise up and throw off the heavy yoke of the Romans as they advanced. And so, Pyrrhus sets off for Rome. On his way, he ejects Roman garrisons from a few cities. They moved up through Campania, that's the richest plain of Italy, under the shadow of Mount Vesuvius. This is before the eruption of that volcano at Pompeii. But the great Greek city of Naples held strong for Rome. It was called Neapolis back then. Next, they came to Capua, one of the richest cities of the plain, Livinus had retreated there. He was ready to hold out in a siege. Pyrrhus made a show of strength by marching his army in front of the city, but he didn't want to get slowed down by a costly siege, so he stationed a guard and kept moving north toward the big prize. In Rome, a panic was gripping the city. The other consul's army was preoccupied with the war with the Etruscans in the north. That left the city dangerously exposed. Teenagers started crowding into the Campus Martius at Rome to enlist in the army. The Roman Senate takes some extraordinary measures. 
they decide to allow the poor and the lower classes to enlist in the army, men who can't even afford armor and weapons. This was dire. They needed all hands on deck. Meanwhile, Pyrrhus gets all the way to Praeneste in the hills right around Rome, 20 miles from Rome. This is modern-day Palestrina. And the city opens its gates to Pyrrhus. And it's said that Pyrrhus climbed up to Praeneste's citadel, its Acropolis, and he turned and looked out over the Tiber River Valley. And he could see off in the distance smoke rising up from the plain. And one of his Samnite advisors pointed and said, You see, there is Rome. And that's how close he got. But shortly after arriving, Pyrrhus finds out that the other Roman consul concluded a hasty peace treaty in his war with the Etruscans, and he was bringing his army back to defend the city. Pyrrhus didn't bring any heavy siege engines with him in his blitz north. Rome was very well fortified as a city. Moreover, Although he was grateful for the nervous hospitality of the citizens of Praeneste, he was now deep in enemy territory, and his supply lines were exposed. Plus, it was late in the season. So he retreated back to Tarentum for the winter. It was a useful show of strength. And anyway, he was starting to think that he might prefer to have the Romans as friends rather than enemies. So Pyrrhus dispatched his wise friend Cineus on another mission. This time it was to Rome as a negotiator. Cineus arrived at the city armed with cartloads of gifts. Matters of foreign policy were decided by a vote of the Senate, and Cineus wanted to grease the tracks well before making his case before that assembly. So he delayed his official appearance as long as he could. He visited the great households, tried to get a sense of the Romans' overall political situation, he offered his gifts around. He tried to build goodwill for a policy of peace and friendship toward Pyrrhus. He was surprised to find that he had no trouble communicating with these people. Many of the nobles knew Greek quite well, and there were no shortage of interpreters who were fluent in both Greek and Latin for the other cases. Cineus was an old hand at this diplomat stuff. He was a nobleman. He knew how it worked. You have an objective to achieve with a city? Well, you go to its aristocrats, ambitious, well-established people. Usually enough of them are very eager to make friendships with powerful and influential men from other cities. It's business. Win these guys over, they can help you win over the rest of the populace. It worked on the Samnites, the Lucanians, other Greek allies. But Cineus couldn't get a single Roman to accept his gifts. They were all very polite and intrigued to find out more about Pyrrhus, but they presented a remarkably united front. They made it clear, there can be no talk of gifts while we are at war, and until the Senate decides we are not, we are. Still, opinion was inclining in favor of peace on Pyrrhus's terms, and when Cineus addressed the Senate, he laid out Pyrrhus's terms. They went something like this. King Pyrrhus has come to Italy not as a plunderer or adventurer, but as a king representing justice to the Tarentines, a party which has been unfairly treated. The king has been within range of sieging the city of Rome, but has withheld, considering it shameful for two reasonable opponents to engage in needless slaughter. 
King Pyrrhus insists that the Romans hereafter agree to treat the Greeks in Italy as friends and allies, as free men, that is, rather than as subjects, and that the Romans restore to the Samnites and Lucanians territories of which they were deprived in their recent wars with the Romans. Recognizing now the great virtue and nobility of the Roman people, King Pyrrhus, in exchange, offers a complete and free return of the Roman captives he possesses, as well as a mutually beneficial alliance between himself, the Tarentines, and the Romans, in which, among other negotiable details, he pledges to help the Romans in their conflicts with any enemy, whether Etruscan, Gaul, Carthaginian, or any other unjust aggressor. After Cineas made his case, the Roman Senate was actually inclined to strike a deal. It would be a blow to their pride and to their economy to give up influence in southern Italy, but they did lose that battle, and the king now had many of their finest young men in captivity. However, as discussion in the Senate was leaning in that direction towards conceding, the doors of the Senate house swung open, and a certain old senator was carried in on a litter. His name was Appius Claudius. He was nicknamed Caicus, the blind, since, well, he was so old that he had gone blind, and he had retired from public life a long time ago. Appius Claudius Caicus had been consul twice, held the prestigious office of censor, and was elected dictator in the year 285. That's like emergency temporary supreme commander. Appius had overseen the construction of Rome's first aqueduct and its first road, too, the Via Appia. It was his sons and sons-in-law who carried him in on his litter into the Senate House. And, so Plutarch says, Appius Claudius addressed the Senate thus. Up to this time, O Romans, I have regarded the misfortune to my eyes as an affliction, but it now distresses me that I am not deaf as well as blind, that I might not hear the shameful resolutions and decrees of yours which bring low the glory of Rome. And he proceeded to scold them like an angry grandfather at length. He reminded them how, when they were at the peak of success, after defeating Etruscans and Samnites, Lucanians and Latins and other enemies, they boasted that, if Alexander the Great had gone west to Italy instead of east to Persia, then he wouldn't be called so great after all, after being defeated at the hands of the Romans on the battlefield. What a bunch of nonsense, considering that they were now about to capitulate to the likes of Pyrrhus. But then, Claudius made a more calculated political point. He said, Do not suppose that you will rid yourselves of this fellow by making him your friend. No, you will bring against you others, and they will despise you as men whom anybody can easily subdue if Pyrrhus goes away without having been punished for his insults, but actually rewarded for them in having enabled Tarentines and Samnites to mock Romans. End quote. And so with his fiery words, Appius Claudius turned the tide within the Senate against Cineas's offers, against peace with Pyrrhus. They sent Cineas back with the message that if Pyrrhus wished to talk about alliances and friendships, they were happy to open that subject as soon as he had departed and ceased all claims to Italy. Pyrrhus was taken aback when he heard the report. And it is said that as he made his report to Pyrrhus, 
Cnaeus added more observations he had gathered about the Romans. The Senate, according to Cnaeus, seemed to him in no way to resemble the typical democratic and oligarchic assemblies Pyrrhus was used to in the Greek city-states, but appeared to him more like a council of many kings. And after Cnaeus saw the Romans' ability to recruit a fresh army from its citizens and allies with a very short turnaround, he told Pyrrhus that he feared they were fighting an enemy that resembled the many-headed hydra which Hercules had fought. Cut one head off, another two quickly grow back in its place. Pyrrhus was starting to think that it was going to be a while before he and Cnaeus could kick back and drink bowls of wine at home in Epirus. Hey friends, we'll get back to the show in just a moment, but I want to do a quick thank you to one of our sponsors. The ancient Greeks saw your health and fitness as intimately connected with your ability to lead. And health is a value that we promote and, of course, practice at Ancient Life Coach. So I'm very pleased to have Ovadia Heart Health today as a sponsor. Dr. Philip Ovadia is a practicing heart surgeon. He's done over 3,000 heart surgery operations. And he founded Ovadia Heart Health to help keep people off his operating table. Ovadia Heart Health is dedicated to helping you transform your body inside and out and your mind through improving your metabolic health. He's got a book that explains his system. It's called Stay Off My Operating Table. It's available in audio too. And he and his team have also developed extensive resources to help you track and chart your improvement. They've also got a group accountability program where you can get both personalized attention from the doctor himself and connect with other people on a similar path. So check it out at ovadiahearthealth.com. O-V-A-D-I-A, hearthealth.com. And if you use the links in the show notes, they'll know that I sent you, and it's a way that you can support this podcast. So thanks, Dr. Ovadia and Ovadia Heart Health team for being fans of the podcast. Soon the Romans sent their own ambassadors to him. They still wanted to negotiate about the prisoners, the embassy included several distinguished Roman politician commanders and was led by the most illustrious of the group, Gaius Fabricius. Cnaeus told Pyrrhus about Fabricius. Fabricius was among the top leadership in Rome, extremely influential, honorable man, good soldier, but he was actually quite poor. Pyrrhus was impressed after his first conversation with the man. He even admired Fabricius as a token of his friendship, with no strings attached, wouldn't Fabricius consider accepting a gift of some gold coin and treasures from Pyrrhus? Perhaps he might rise in society to a level worthy of his character. Fabricius declined. The next day, Pyrrhus wanted to impress the man. Pyrrhus did have a flair for the theatrical, so... He secretly stations an elephant behind a curtain as he and Fabricius walk through the camp. The only Romans who had ever seen an elephant at that time were the men that Pyrrhus defeated in the recent battle of Heraclea, and Fabricius hadn't been there. On the king's secret signal, the elephant's groom pulls the curtain aside to reveal the beast. It trumpets loudly. Fabricius calmly flashed a knowing smile at Pyrrhus. Not a flinch. The tone of the embassy was amicable enough that they had dinner together one evening. 
They discussed all sorts of topics, and the Roman ambassadors were particularly curious to hear more about Greek philosophy. Cineas mentioned the teacher that he was most fond of, and he knew him personally, the Athenian philosopher Epicurus. And Cineas is going on a bit in his enthusiasm. He's laying out Epicurus's doctrines concerning the gods and civil governments and the highest good. The Epicureans, he explains, have determined that the highest human good is pleasure, and they avoid being active politically on the ground that it is injurious and destroys happiness. And furthermore, they teach us that the gods are as far removed as possible from any partiality or anger or even concern for us, but rather live an exemplary life of ease, free of cares. Before Cineas could explain the necessary qualifications and definitions which nuance all these counterintuitive doctrines, Fabricius is said to have exclaimed, By Hercules, may Pyrrhus and the Samnites keep studying these doctrines carefully as long as they are at war with us. We're not told whether Cineas laughed. And so after spending some time with him, Pyrrhus all the more admired the character of Fabricius. He was even more eager to have the Romans as friends rather than waging war against them. He offered Fabricius many more rewards if the man could bring about a lasting friendship between Pyrrhus and the city. Fabricius did not give him much reason for hope. But Pyrrhus nonetheless decided to release a substantial number of his prisoners and sent them back with Fabricius as a sign of goodwill. And this episode actually became famous among later Roman writers. The first great Roman epic poet, Aeneas, well, he commemorated Pyrrhus's visit in an entire book of his historical epic called the Annales. Aeneas, actually a native Oscan speaker, he was born near Tarentum a few decades after all this transpired. He wrote in Latin, though. So in this great epic poem, Aeneas has Pyrrhus releasing the captives, asking for no ransom in return, and he has Pyrrhus give the following little speech to Fabricius. Gold will I none, nor price shall ye give, for I ask none. Come, let us not be merchants of war, but warriors embattled. Nay, let us venture our lives, and the sword, not gold, weigh the outcome. Make we the trial by valor of arms, and see if Dame Fortune wills it that ye shall prevail, or I, or what be her judgment. Hear thou too this word, good Fabricius, whose valor soever spared hath been by the fortune of war, their freedom I grant them. So I give and present them to you, my brave Romans. Take them back to their homes. The great God's blessings attend you. It went something like that. Aeneas's great work is lost, by the way. It's preserved in fragments quoted in other authors. And this passage we actually get from Cicero's On Duties. And I think it's not too pretentious to read the Latin for you here, because in Aeneas's day and in Pyrrhus's day, to write in Latin instead of Greek was really the polar opposite of pretentious, because the Romans didn't really have a literary tradition at that point. So here's how the Latin sounds. Nec miaurum posco, nec mi pretium dederitis. Non cauponantes bellum, sed belligerantes. Ferro, non auro, vitam cernamus utrique. Vos ne velit an me regnare era quidve ferat force, vir tute experiamur, et hoc simul accipe dictum, 
quorum virtuti belli fortuna pepercit, eorundem me libertati parcere certumst. Dono ducite doque, volentibus cum magnis dis. Aeneas's Annales. And there was a later Roman story that the prisoners were actually released in time to get back home to celebrate the Roman holiday of Saturnalia. That was their sort of late December equivalent of Mardi Gras. But then the Senate sent them right back to Pyrrhus after the festival. The Roman Senate refused to take a gift from an enemy, refused to back down in any way from their resolve to fight out this war. They sent the captives back with the message that they would listen to no talk of peace or friendship until Pyrrhus had taken his arms and army out of Italy and rode back to Epirus on the ships that brought him. So maybe that episode happened. Some historians are skeptical. Either way, they were still at war. Pyrrhus got busy consolidating his power in the south, readying himself for another battle. His main focus was Apulia, that is, southeastern Italy. Today it's called Puglia. It consists of mostly rolling, rocky Mediterranean plains broken up by occasional hills. The Romans had garrisons and allies all throughout the region. Pyrrhus spent the spring driving them out. And so that summer, the Romans mustered a huge army to try to dislodge Pyrrhus. They brought a great assortment of their Italian allies, and the king brought his full forces to meet them. The Tarentines, Samnites, Lucanians, and also his Epirots and other soldiers he had fighting for him from Greece. Macedonians, Ambraciots, Thesprotians, Arcarnanians. Ancient sources agree that the armies were more or less equally matched. Some say each side had 70,000 men. Others say more like 40,000. That's more likely. Either way, it was a huge battle brewing. And Pyrrhus, of course, brought his elephants... He had lost a few by then. He now had 19, but they were enough to wreak some havoc. The Romans, however, had learned some things from their earlier defeat, so they rigged together some special anti-elephant chariots. And these were the closest thing to armored vehicles anyone of that time came up with. The cart had a shielded front. There was a long mobile spear sticking out of the front. It was pushed by oxen from the rear, and there were several riders. And there were also two long poles coming forward from either side with a spike on the end. And they were covered with some sort of pitch so they could light those up into big torches during the battle, hopefully scare the elephants. The armies met in the territory of modern-day Foggia, near a town called Ausculum. It would be called the Battle of Ausculum. Sometimes you see it written Asculum. And there's several days of the armies just waiting, sizing each other up, looking for the right opportunity. Once again, there's a river between them. But this time, Pyrrhus makes the first move. He leads the charge across the river. But the Romans hold firm on the high ground across the other bank. But the incline was wooded, so Pyrrhus can't use his cavalry or his elephants effectively. There's a hard slug out that lasts from dawn till dusk, but then the armies separate in a draw for the night, and they retreat back to their camps. On the next day, however, Pyrrhus sends a division of light troops out in the early hours of the morning, and they seize the stronger areas of the battlefield on the Roman side, the higher grounds with those pesky trees. 
Then he crosses over the rest of his forces unopposed. And so he forces the Romans to fight him on the elevated plateau on their side of the escarpment on level ground. And the first forces up on the plateau, after the light troops, are Pyrrhus's heavy infantry, his Epirot and Macedonian phalanx. They have the long Sarissa spears. And the Romans engage these immediately with their own foot soldiers who have swords. They're trying to drive them back before Pyrrhus gets his cavalry and elephants up over the lip of the canyon. And the Epirots are starting to give. But then Pyrrhus personally rushes into battle with these men, and he shores them up by his own example. And the infantry holds strong. And then Pyrrhus deploys his beasts on the right wing. But by this time, Pyrrhus has seen the anti-elephant wagons from the day before. And so, instead of having his elephants charge en masse, he intersperses bands of highly skilled bowmen and slingers in between them. And these bands of shooters carpet the Roman wagons with missiles. Most of the operators and oxen teams are either put to flight or killed. So the carts get disabled before they can have any effect on the elephants. And so the elephant column, now comfortably on the flat ground, turns left and crashes into the flank of the Roman infantry like a tidal wave, unopposed. Nowadays, we tend to imagine the use of animals in war as a sort of cruelty or abuse. We think of the elephant as a gentle animal, friendly to humans, and they generally are, of course. But remember, bull elephants in the wild can easily fight each other for 10 hours straight, butting their huge heads. They slash and gouge each other with six to eight foot long tusks with marvelous speed and dexterity. In ancient warfare, of course, they had blades fixed on those tusks. So you have to wonder, would the elephants have been so devastating in battle would they have been employed so often with such effect if they didn't on some level kind of get into it, even enjoy it, or at least at that moment in battle, find within themselves whatever drive and motivation they use in their great duels in the wild? You wonder. Well, the elephants and their skilled riders, these mahouts, as they are called, whom the elephants had grown up with, who knew their steeds' personalities and how to bring out the warrior in them, loved them even. They made Pyrrhus proud at Ausculum. As they tore into the Romans' left flank, they ripped up the cohesion of the Roman line. The Roman infantry hadn't trained for this sort of thing. How do you train for that sort of thing if you've never encountered a war elephant? The Roman lines quickly buckle, and the Romans are routed. Pyrrhus once again refrains from a murderous pursuit. And so the Romans retreated to the north. But this was another very costly victory. And it was after this battle, the Battle of Ausculum, that Pyrrhus was speaking with one of his officers, and the man was praising the king, congratulations, you're victorious. And then Pyrrhus looked at him and said, if we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. The Roman infantry had inflicted punishing losses on his own phalanx. Many of his cavalry had been lost on the day before. And once again, a number of his best friends and generals had fallen in combat too. It was difficult to muster all those Italian and Tarentine allies together, and now there were no more that he could draw on. 
But the Romans, he learned, had many more where that came from. This was indeed like fighting a hydra. And so this, the Battle of Asculum, was the first so-called Pyrrhic victory. But it was a victory nonetheless, and the Romans were humbled, and the people of Tarentum were exultant. Their dream looked like it was coming true. They had been reestablished as the preeminent city in southern Italy. The proud Greek cities of Locri and Croton finally conceded and submitted to Pyrrhus. They submitted to Tarentum, too, implicitly, for now. And the Tarentines commissioned a famous sculptor to make a large statue of the goddess Victory, or Nike, Nike, holding a trophy standing on top of a globe. They stood it up in a prominent place in the city. They minted coins with Pyrrhus's name on them. The coins had an image of an elephant on one side. Other cities in Italy started minting coins with Pyrrhus's name too, honoring him as the new sovereign in the region. It looked like the Romans might finally have met their match, someone able to put a stop to their continual expansion in Italy. But still they refused to make a peace treaty. All the same, things were much quieter in southern Italy now, and Pyrrhus had staked out some very promising turf. However, doesn't it often happen that as your renown for success spreads, you're presented with new opportunities to risk the gains that you have achieved for the chance to add exponentially to them. Well, this is what happened to Pyrrhus. Two doors now open to him at the very same time. First, the Macedonian throne was suddenly vacant. A huge band of northern European barbarian invaders, Gauls, had poured into Greece wreaking havoc. Old Lysimachus had already died a couple of years ago in a great battle, and his throne was seized by a young estranged son of Ptolemy. They called him the Thunderbolt. Well, King Thunderbolt had just been killed himself in a great battle with these Gauls. And the Gauls were now rampaging through Greece, they were ravaging the countryside, plundering cities. And there were two other young monarchs of the next generation, around Pyrrhus's age, who were trying to make a play now at the Macedonian throne to take over Greece. They were going to have to defeat the Gauls to do that. One of them was named Antiochus. He was the son of old Seleucus, the king of Asia, who was dead now. And the other man was the son of Demetrius. You remember Demetrius, right? Pyrrhus's late brother-in-law and arch-enemy? Well, Demetrius's son was named after his grandfather, Demetrius's dad, Antigonus. So, Antiochus and Antigonus vying for the Macedonian throne. But letters were coming from Pyrrhus's connections in Macedonia, and they suggested, why not King Pyrrhus of Macedonia? Was he not a match for the likes of Antiochus or Antigonus? Would this not be a chance to finally seize the prize that he had long been aiming at? If he could mop up that barbarian horde, the Gauls, he could become the savior of Greece, the king of Macedon. He could put Epirus on the stable footing like he had always dreamed of doing since he was a teenager. Surely he had as good a shot as anyone. But then, at the very same time, he got a call from the opposite direction, from Syracuse in Sicily. It had been ten years since Agathocles, tyrant of Syracuse, died. That is, Pyrrhus's ex-father-in-law, the father of Lanasa, 
Agathocles had been very popular. He had united many of the Greeks on the island of Sicily, sometimes through friendship, sometimes through force. Agathocles had actually willed on his deathbed that Syracuse's constitution be returned to a democracy. But ever since his death, there was a kind of power vacuum in Sicily, and the Greek cities of Sicily had been plunged into factional violence. Opportunistic tyrants had taken control of many of the cities. So there was turmoil and disunity in Sicily. And this had opened up an opportunity for the age-old common enemy of the Greeks on the island a menace from still further west. It was the Carthaginians. For centuries, the Carthaginians had controlled much of the western half of Sicily. Carthage was a great ancient Phoenician city in Tunisia. It was only a day or so's sail away from Sicily to the southwest. And the Carthaginians had long dreamed of one day taking Sicily all for themselves with its rich farmland, the volcanic soils from Mount Etna, its equestrian estates, its trade routes. And now, with the Greeks in disarray, the Carthaginians were using their powerful naval fleet and their large mercenary armies, and they were clawing back territory, clawing back large sections of the island. They had isolated many Greek cities from each other, and it looked like Agathocles' work of unification was quickly being undone. Even Syracuse was being rocked by factional infighting, There were now two rival strongmen who had seized power in Syracuse. One of them held the city itself. The other guy took control of this fortified island that sat in the city's harbor. It's called Ortigia. And each man was claiming to be the legitimate power in the city. But they were kind of at a stalemate. And so now, amazingly, both of these guys came to an agreement. They'd prefer to have their dispute settled by a trusted third party with a reputation for honor and justice instead of seeing more of their countrymen's blood spilled in this dispute or more Greek territory lost to Carthage. So now both rival factions sent to Pyrrhus to ask him to intervene and devise a settlement at Syracuse. And they promised to arrange to make him the leader of the Greeks of Sicily, all of them. He could have at his command not just Syracuse, but Acragus, Leontini, this modern-day Agrigento and Lentini and many others. Pyrrhus could lead them all in a sort of holy war against the Phoenician menace. This was an incredible opportunity. Syracuse was not an easy place to get a foothold. It was the most fortified and naturally defensible and rich city on the entire island. Its wealth was famous. Trade, land holdings, horses, gold. Its political families were deeply entrenched, extremely well-connected, all over the Mediterranean. And now... Pyrrhus didn't just have a foot in the door, it was being swung wide open to him. Pyrrhus cursed his fortune. He was now being presented with possibly the two greatest opportunities of his lifetime, but he could only pick one. But Syracuse was closer. Sicily lies just two miles off the coast of southern Italy. and Unlike the Macedonian play, Sicily was arguably an extension of what he was already doing. He could win powerful allies to help him sort out the Romans once and for all. Moreover, there was an even greater prospect before him. Agathocles' dream was to unite the Greeks of the West. In fact, uniting Magna Graecia was the dream of many powerful Western Greeks before him. Hieron, Dionysius, Archytas of Tarentum, and perhaps even the great Pythagoras had something like that in mind. Maybe it would 
take an outsider, someone of royal blood, to finally pull it off. And of course, for Pyrrhus, Sicily was a family matter. As we heard in the last episode, Agathocles' daughter, Lanissa, left Pyrrhus for Demetrius, but before doing that, she had borne him two healthy sons named Alexander and Helenus. And Pyrrhus had left his eldest son from a different marriage in charge of affairs at Epirus, but his two sons from Lanissa, his Sicilian sons, as it were, Alexander and Helenus, these were the grandsons of Agathocles himself. And they were teenagers now, and he brought them with him to Italy. And they were accompanying him to these battles with the Romans. He was training them up. Perhaps they could be kings of Sicily too someday. Sicily was the surer bet. Leave the Gauls to Antiochus and Antigonus. Who knows, they might die trying to fight them. And if they both survived in the Gaulish onslaught, maybe they would weaken each other afterwards. Things could still open up in Macedonia for him. But a wide open invitation at Syracuse, when Pyrrhus already had a power base in Italy, this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. He was just following through on his go-out-of-bounds-to-win-the-Greece-game plan, right? So he accepted the Syracusans' invitation. He began making his preparations. Now, when the Tarentines found out that he was planning to go to Sicily before they had reached a peace agreement with the Romans, they were incensed. Pyrrhus told them to calm down. He could handle things. And couldn't he? Well, just to be sure that the disgruntled Tarentines didn't try anything funny while he was gone, he installed a garrison in the city. It was for protection. But as Pyrrhus was getting ready to set out, he got word that the Carthaginians had heard of his plans, and they decided to preemptively siege Syracuse. They had the city surrounded with 50,000 men, and they were blockading the harbor with 100 warships. They also sent 30 warships to guard the Straits of Messina between Sicily and Italy. On top of all that, the Romans had occupied and fortified Regium. That was the city that controlled the Italian side of the Straits. In fact, the Carthaginians and the Romans, who had long been friends and trading partners, had forged a great defensive alliance against Pyrrhus. Nobody had any intention of letting Pyrrhus get to Syracuse easily. But the eagle had already left the nest, and the game was afoot once again. So there you have part two of three of the life of Pyrrhus. As usual, before we close, it's worth asking, what can we take away from Pyrrhus' example and apply in our own lives? Well, one thing you could observe is that Pyrrhus consistently tried to show respect for his enemy. He was a Greek, and like most Greeks, he tended to think that the Greeks were the greatest civilization on the planet. But he quickly learned to admire the Romans, especially after they had proven themselves to be worthy adversaries. He held his troops off from the murderous chase down, for example, after his victorious battles. Maybe he thought this would put him in a better negotiating position. And the sources all agree that Pyrrhus genuinely took measures to try to come to agreements with the Romans before and after battle. Any decent military theorist would agree that the best way to win a war is to get what you want without having to fight it in the first place. As von Clausewitz famously said, war is simply the continuation of political intercourse with the addition of other means. 
Pyrrhus is not famous for being an amazing politician, but he was decent. It's certainly an indispensable skill for any ambitious leader to be able to negotiate and friend-make instead of immediately resorting to force. Of course, the Romans were an enemy very unlike anything that the Greeks from Greece were used to dealing with. They were, let's say, unusually intransigent in their demands. So perhaps we can't entirely blame Pyrrhus for failing to come to an agreement with them for that reason. There are many other things that we could say in criticism of Pyrrhus, things that many people throughout history have said, not least Plutarch himself. But I think these are best left for the next episode and perhaps best of all left for when we compare Pyrrhus with the man that Plutarch paired him with, Gaius Marius. If you enjoyed this, leave us a review and or sign up for our weekly Ancient Life emails at ancientlifecoach.com. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay ancient. Stay tuned. Until next time, this is Alex Petkus. Hold up. 